This message was recorded live at Plantation Seventh-day Adventist Church in Plantation, Florida. Welcome to PlantationSDA.tv. Here you will find a diverse variety of Bible-based topics and conversations. God's master plan to inspire your mind, bring peace to your heart, and uplift your soul. May you be blessed and encouraged as you listen to God's Word. Father in heaven, speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been a privilege. Hello. For those of you that I haven't seen this morning, it's been a privilege to be here uh, with the gentleman for the last few uh, few hours since last night. Um, we've had a good time. Last night, myself and the gentleman, we discussed the idea of accepting and admitting the areas in our life where we are injured. And so I want to start it off this way. The text that you'll see come up on the screen is going to be Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. And that is predominantly where we are going to work from today. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, and I will read. It says this, Wherefore, seeing we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that doth so easily beset us and run our race with patience, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. I want to look at a few words here. It says, um, first of all, you are surrounded. Sometimes you can feel alone. It's not really true. It says you're surrounded. So let's just start right there that many of us are going through things that we feel I'm the only one. You know, Tigger, when he sings that song, the wonderful thing about Tigger's, is Tigger's a wonderful thing. You know, and at the end, he ends his song saying, I'm the only one. Kind of like Elijah when he's running away. Elijah's like, I'm the only one you've got left, Lord. The, the Bible says you're not the only one. You are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. It says, let us lay aside that idea of cast, throw off the weight. Now the weight here is not a bad thing, by the way. Let's just deal with that first and foremost. The weight is not a bad thing. The weight, who here, who here has lifted weights before? You played a sport in some form or fashion, you had to lift weights to get into shape. Anybody? Few gentlemen here, okay, great. The weight is not a problem. I used to walk, I used to be in the military, and when they put a backpack on you, they make it heavier most of the time than what you're actually going to need for the mission because they need you to build up endurance and strength for either when you run or when you're going to carry stuff. The weight is not a problem. You're supposed to work out and exercise. You're supposed to use the weight to develop. The problem in the text is that people are not working out anymore. They're trying to run with weights on. I've seen people that play football, brothers that play football and run sports, and they have this thing behind them. It's, it's, it, they're either dragging a sled or they are, um, or, they, or they have an, uh, 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 what's that thing? A parachute, thank you so much, that they drag and it's holding them back. The goal is that when they actually have to run a race, you're faster in the race than you are in practice, okay? The challenge that many of us have is that we can't tell the difference between the race and the practice. 
And so we're carrying something that we should have let go of a long time ago. To cast aside the weight and the sin that is literally missing the mark. You're trying to do well, but you're slipping. The word there, it's literally I'm shooting with my rifle or a bow and I'm shooting at the, at, at, at the sign and I'm shooting, but it goes off to the right. I may not be a great shot. It goes off to the left. It dips down. I don't get enough behind it. I'm trying to do right, but I've missed the mark. And here it talks about sin, and it says, and the sin that so easily sets or trips us up, the idea there, the sin that entangles us, it entangles you around the feet. So here's the thing, the weight doesn't naturally entangle you, but the sin does. But the problem is that if you have a weight and a sin, how much more likely are you to be entangled? The sin's naturally going to get you. That's a natural thing. But now you've got this weight that's slowing you down. So where you could have jumped, you're not dodging. I I said this this morning. um, I said it this morning um, that we have, there are three ways to look at sin. And we like, we really love one of them. We kind of like the other, but we're not a really big fan of the third. We love to talk about sin when we says, what did you do? What'd you do wrong? You're guilty, you need to be punished or you need to be corrected. Right, we love that one. And we're real quick to notice it, by the way. You all, you all know that humans have a negative bias. We remember negative stuff so much easier than you do good stuff. Man, you'll grill your kids down for every negative thing they do. But when they do right, you're like, oh, congratulations. Hmm? We will have an entire board meeting and, and business meeting about censorship, etc., for misbehavior in church. But if someone is consistent, we very rarely... If someone's doing well, oh, good job. That's your Christian duty. We love to talk about, and you know it takes like seven positive, seven to ten positive things to undercut one negative thing. So if I'm coming at you, Doc, and I keep telling you how messed up and how bad and you need to fix this at your job and you need to fix this and fix that, and then that, you know, if I say only one positive thing, how much impact am I having on your life? I'm forcing him out the door by default because all I can do is talk about how, how, how much you need to improve. And we, it, listen, I'm, I'm talking about, listen, I'm talking about my church right now because we love to tell people how much they need to improve. We love, oh my God, we love to remind you. What's, what's happening? Yeah, we're switching out. Great. We, okay. I'll just turn it off. And I'll do that and hold it and we'll have a good day. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Hey, y'all. Wow. There we go. Hey. Hey. Yeah. All right. Now, if I get loud, you got to handle that now. <laughs> All right. But we love to tell, you know, we love to tell you that about the amount of commandments that you've broken. We have a thousand different commandments and we think they're all valid. We love to list for you the books that talk about the commandments coming from the 19th century into the 20th century. We love to tell you about the commandments to do with your dress and your diet. We love to tell you about the commandments about the fact that the angels don't follow you into the gym or into or into 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 the, the, the movie theater. We, but they but apparently they follow you when you bring the theater home. We love to tell you about the commandments. Right? And all these different commandments you got to keep. We love to tell you about the commandments and to remind you that you're not doing it well or we pat ourselves on the back because we're uber vegan and we can just be translated now. We love it. 
And I grew up vegan. I ain't mad at vegans. They make good food. Some of them make good food. Some. Listen, if you're going to be a vegan, please season your food. That's all I'm saying. Just, don't just come up with some bland oatmeal patty and call it Jesus. Like we're not, no. But we love to talk about everybody's responsibility and power of choice. We love it. Because if I talk to you, ma'am, about your power to choose and your responsibility, then I tend to focus, ma'am, on the stuff that you do wrong and I do right. And I highlight you and minimize me. Everybody thinks they're sexy when they look in the mirror, but boy, you love to judge the big person over here because they wide and all outside. We do the same thing with, 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 our, with our rules. Then you turn around and we love this one too. We love the question, what's wrong with you? We love that. We love that question, but we don't love it as much as what did you do? The question, what's wrong with you, gets us back to what did you do? Right? The question, and this is how we play it. Well, brother, you know that we're all born in sin and shaped in iniquity. So you're damnable by default. And now that I've got us thinking about sin, I'm going to tell you what you did wrong. Hmm? We love that one. We don't like to stay there too much because if you stop to think about it too much, if someone's born predisposed to sin, then why am I being so hard on them when they actually do what they're predisposed to do? Nobody treats a crack baby like that. Ain't that right? Nobody treats babies born to addicts like all of a sudden they should just not have an addiction problem just because they've grown up and they've never smoked. No, it's in your genes that that's the problem. We have a problem accepting the fact that the issue with sin is in the genes. Now, it's in the Bible, by the way. You don't you think I'm making it up? It says, it says this. This is what it says. Visiting the iniquities of the fathers and to the children to the third and fourth generation. That's what it says. That's what it says. That's, that's the generational hand-me-down. Right? It says in another place more specifically. It says this. It says types of sin. It says in uh, Romans 7, Paul, Paul, the apostle, the, the, most, the most prolific writer of multiple books in the, in the scripture says this. For see, I law in my members. For the good that I want to do, I don't do. And the evil that I don't want to do, I do. I see something in my body that compels me to do the wrong I don't want to do. And when I think about the right, my body tells me to do wrong. We're not comfortable with that. We don't like that. Because I feel like I'm giving somebody an excuse. Earlier today, we talked about accountability, about the gentleman at the, at the pool of Bethesda. And that brother, yes, absolutely. That brother should have been up 38 years ago. Today we're talking about two other, two other people, but I'm talking about the types of sin. Lay aside the sin that so easily besets you. We're comfortable holding people accountable. We're even slightly comfortable talking about being born in, because I can at least judge you as a sinner inherently. Uh, well, you know, they're just a sinner anyway, so they're going to mess it up some, someday. But the one we're not comfortable with is what happened to you. It's one thing to be inclined to sin. It's an entirely different thing for me to participate in sin, but it's a, a wholly other thing for me to be in an environment that supports a poor decision or in which I am sinned against. Entirely different 
thing because as I said this morning if we're all in the community in this church and there's somebody that manages to be in the kitchen and they get assaulted in the kitchen well why do they get assaulted in the kitchen was the kitchen door open why was the kitchen door open do you have cameras in the building is there security on the campus why isn't there security on the campus what's what is wrong with the community that somebody's allowed to be alone and be assaulted in the back room we're not comfortable talking about the things that happened to us. And so we'll come in here and we'll sit down and, you know, have a good, happy Sabbath. And, and, and I say this with all due respect, um, I'm 49 this year. The generations older than me are not comfortable with these conversations. And I understand. Because back then, that's not what, that's not what you talked about. You didn't embarrass the family. You kept it in. Everybody knew what happened, who did it. They knew when and where. They could tell you, you don't talk about it. You push on through. And to my older generation, I love you. I, I say that with all sincerity. I love you. But there's some stuff going on with my age and down, and we don't know why we have a problem. And it don't help us when y'all tell us, get it right, when we don't know what's in the genes. It don't help us. We see you and the auntie and the uncle struggling. We know y'all aren't telling us something, but we don't know what it is. And now your grandkids are showing up what grandpa used to do. And we don't know why. Nobody told us. I'm not mad at anybody. I understand it's not comfortable. It's painful. I admit that. But there was a trauma that has been handed down. It has been handed down. And it shows up. The text says so. The text says, visiting the iniquities of the fathers unto the children to the third and fourth generation. It doesn't say that it's permanent residence. It's a visitor. So there's hope there. It's a visitor. It don't have to live, but you're going to get a visit. But at least tell me who's coming to dinner. Tell me who's coming over. We can lock the door. Lay aside the weight and the sin that so easily entangles you. We struggle particularly with the sins of trauma because they are embarrassing, because most many times they happen so close to home, because how do you hold accountable someone that you love? It's hard to do that in the family. It's hard to do that in the family of God. Because you love them. And we love to quote the Bible verse, love covers a multitude of sins. It may, but it don't mean you ain't accountable. It don't mean you're not going to be accountable. We have a twisted sense of forgiveness. As if forgiveness means we're pals again. Forget, I'm not your pal. I just don't expect you to pay me back. But we're not pals. You ain't coming to the barbecue. I don't expect you to pay me back, but you're not coming. You have not demonstrated safety. You have not opened yourself to accountability. I do not trust you 
Trust must be earned. Love is given. We have looped forgiveness as if trust and as if trust and love are synonymous, and they're not. Trust must be earned. We have a challenge when it comes to injuries in the community. We don't know what to do with that. We don't know. There are two Bible stories that talk about injury in the life of Jesus. Fascinating, actually. There's one of them is the gentleman that, that his, Jesus is on the Mount of Olives. No, yeah, Mount of Olives. He goes up and there's transfiguration. And Peter's up there and he gets all long-winded and he wants to get all ritualistic. And the other disciples are down at the bottom of the mountain and they're upset because Peter, James, and John are at the top. Now, let me just sidebar say this. Don't be the disciples at the bottom of the mountain. If God left you at the bottom, it's not because you're not worthy to come to the top. It's because he can trust you with what's at the bottom. There's some stuff down at the bottom that I don't trust Peter, James, and John to handle. I need you down there. I need to get them up here. You know me well enough. They do not. We think that those brothers were privileged to get up. Well, they were privileged, but they weren't privileged because they were great. They were privileged because they were rough. Peter's trying to chop people's heads off. James and John like to fight. Think, think about it. The people that Jesus trusted with the demon-possessed boy was a terrorist and Judas. Not his closest friends, the terrorist and his betrayer. Sometimes when God leads you in the valley, it's not because you're, that you're worthless. It's because he trusts you. And moving on, he comes down the mountain and there's, this is the first traumatic story. Comes down the mountain and they all see Jesus. Hey, Jesus, what's going on? And he walks up and says, why are you questioning my disciples? And a man comes up, I brought my disciples for you to heal, for them to heal my son, and they could not. And the, the whole story so far revolves around the son, and, and he says, how long has this been happening to your boy? Since he, was a, since he was a youngster, and he's often thrown into the fire, and thrown into the water, and he writhes, and blah, blah, blah. And the father betrays himself. <laughs> he betrays himself. He says, if you can do anything, Help us. Why us? I thought the boy was the one possessed. Why all of a sudden is it us? Hmm? Because the dad had a problem that hadn't got fixed. And because the dad hadn't addressed the problem, the son has the demon. And so he can't just come in, a uh, pastor, he just can't come in and say, yo, heal my son. I have a problem. And I can't stand seeing my kids dealing with my stuff. So if you're going to free him, heal me too. Help us. And when I read the text, when I read the text, the Bible said, because it's, it's fascinating to read the text, the text implies that the boy had been injured. 
there's an implication that something bad had happened to the boy. But the problem is, if something bad had happened to the boy, and the dad says, help us, something ha bad had happened to the dad. He hadn't healed. He hadn't had boundaries. And all of a sudden now, his boy had a similar experience, and it hurt the boy worse. Hmm? Jesus comes out after he cast the, the boy out, that cast the demon out, and they say, Lord, why couldn't we cast it? And he comes up with this statement, you know, if you had faith inside of mustard, mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, be moved. He says, if you have faith and doubt not, you can say this mountain, be moved, and it will be cast into the sea. Then he goes on and he says, this type this does not come out but by fasting and prayer. And the funny thing about that statement is that, and if you were here this morning, this part of faith you'll, re you'll recognize. Nobody in the Adventist church ever taught me what faith is. They'll quote you Bible texts. They don't tell you what it is. Faith the size of a mustard seed. Never seen it. You're comparing it to something tangible, but I've never seen it. Never seen it. And there's another one, uh, there's another thing, verse about faith that I can't remember. But in the idea of, of faith's non-tangibility, this is what you see. They read that verse, this type comes not without fasting and prayer. And we take that quite literally. That if you're on your knees praying all the time, and if you stop eating, somehow that builds your faith. Now, the problem with that is I know tons of people who have stopped eating. And I know tons of people who pray all the time. They still got mountains. So what do you do when you have the mountain of a horrible experience that brings doubt, guilt, and shame, and you come to the church and they tell you to pray about it. When they read to you from Hebrews 11, all the people that God did great stuff for, and you waiting on it. Lord, you parted the Red Sea, you're gonna do it for me. Lord, you fed them manna. Yeah, you're going to get chicken. You waiting on the supernatural on your knees without eating. Waiting on some mystical, magical thing to take place because you pray without ceasing. There's a few things we don't understand. One is what prayer is. We don't understand what prayer is. Prayer is not one-way communication. It's two-way. The Bible says in Philippians, it is, it's not Philippians? I think it's Philippians, but in one of the Bible verses, it is God that worketh in you both to deal in, will and to do his good pleasure. Which means even your desire to talk to God is catalyzed by God talking to you. Most of our prayers are so one-directional, we don't let God get a word in edgewise. So the Bible says in Hebrews 8, you don't even know what you're praying for. 
prayer, before I talk, prayer is listening. Before I say, God, will you, I'm listening to God, what would you like? What do you want? How can I help you, Lord? What do you need from me? What do you have for me? What do you want me to ask you? Abraham, Abraham Heschel, Abraham Heschel was marching across the Edmund Pettus Bridge and he was marching with, with, uh, with, with, with King and them. He's a rabbi. He's dead now, but a big time rabbi back in the day. Very well known. Wrote, wrote some really good books. Marching across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. When they, when they interviewed him after the fact, they says, hey rabbi, did you have the time to pray five times a day like you, like you normally do? Because we know you pray five times a day. Did you have time to pray five times a day? He said, my feet were praying. He was not interested in the ritual of prayer that we have. His prayer was so actionable. I need these black people to be treated well. My feet are praying because I am singing. My actions are my prayer. This type does not go without, type of faith does not, this type does not come out without prayer and fasting. What is, what, is, what is the fasting if you have faith and doubt not? What is the fasting? Fasting simply is abstaining. Abs, that's all it simply is, is abstaining. What mountain needs to be moved? Is it the mountain he just came down or is it the mountain of doubt? If you have faith and doubt not, the mountain he needs moved is not the literal mountain, it's a mountain of doubt. So now the question I have to ask is, what is faith? Here's faith. Faith starts with truth. Faith is based in truth. There's a fact. It's a fact. This fact exists. And it has integrity with itself, like gravity. Gravity will always exist. Can't get away from it. It's consistent. Where you're here, Japan, Africa, South America, don't matter. Iceland, don't matter. Gravity is gravity is gravity is gravity. Something that goes up must come down unless you override by using extra, extra energy to get past gravity. But gravity demands that you respect it. I have a fact, and it has integrity. I am then invited to intellectually accept and believe that gravity is true. You know what? I've seen Einstein. I've seen people fall off buildings. I fell down the stairs one time. I think gravity is a real thing. I accept that gravity is real. Thank you very much. Then you're invited to engage in an experimental experience with gravity. It worked. Works again. It's consistent. Now, what happened? I experimented with gravity in a known, safe, stable, secure, resourced environment. I built trust in gravity in a safe, stable, secure, resourced environment. Faith is trust-based actions in an unknown or less than trustworthy environment. That's what faith is. 
Faith is not magical. It's not mystical. It's not anything else. It is actionable. So if you're not taking action, it's not faith. If your environment is stable, it's not faith. Give me a, give me a Bible, Jason. Sure. Bible text. Bible text. What's the gentleman's name? Peter, hanging out with Jesus. Saw the two biggest fish fries. He, 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 went, he went and healed people. Peter cast out demons. Think about that. Consider this. So did Judas. Cast out demons, healed sick, raised some dead. Safe, stable, secure environment. All of a sudden, Jesus is like, hey, guys, go on to the other side. I'll see you in a little bit. Okay, Jesus, we'll take the boat. Great. They get in the boat. They're fishermen. Here comes the storm. Here comes Jesus. Hey, buddy, you want to get in the boat? No, I don't think I'll, I'll meet you on the other side. You sure? We're sinking. It's stormy here. And you're over there. Yeah, but I'm good. I'll meet you on the other side. And Peter says, Lord, if it's you, what? Tell me to come to you on the water. All right, come on. Is the environment safe? Is the environment stable? Does he have the resources to not drown? Does he have the security of not drowning? But he steps out anyways. Why? Because the fact that he trusts in is the person that called him, not the water that's under his feet. He does not trust in the boat. He does not trust in his own swimming. He says, the master called me. I'm going to step out. And wherever I step, it's going to be terra firma. That is faith. Hmm? That's what faith is. So if you're not stepping when it's convenient, it ain't faith. If everything is convenient, it ain't faith. If you refuse to move, it ain't faith. So you come to the next lady, young man and his dad, generational curse. You come to the next person, it's John 7. Nope, it's John 8. The end of John 7 says, Jesus is talking to some people. And the people went to their house. That's what the Bible says. And the people went to their house. Every one of them to their house. Chapter, chapter 8 opens up and Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. So there's no chapter divisions in the Bible, in the New Testament. No chapter divisions. So it flows. They went to their house. Jesus went to the mountain. And it continues. Early the next day, Jesus comes from the mountain to the temple. And here they come with a lady caught in adultery. Now, me being me, and having lived the life I've lived, I don't think I've ever just walked up and caught somebody in adultery. You know, like you're going, you're going, to, get, you're going to, the, to the Trader Joe's, you know, you pass by something, oh look, adultery. It doesn't work that way. You know, walking around and, hey, adultery's taking, oh, I found you in adultery. What do you know? You're doing that here? It's not, that's not the conversation that takes place. Jesus came from where? They came from where? He came from where? They came from where? Who'd they bring? The lady. Caught in a what? But they're coming from where? And he's coming from where? And they're bringing who? From where? She was at their house. 
they knew who she was. They didn't catch her in adultery. They knew exactly where she'd be. They knew her personally. And they come to Jesus trying to trip him, accusing her of stuff they've done. Jesus, the law of Moses says she should be stoned, but Caesar doesn't say so. What do you say? Forget the fact that, bruh, you're bringing someone from your house. Talking about trauma. People that are injured in the presence of Jesus. Jesus starts writing down in the sand, and you don't know what he's writing, but the text says that they all leave from the oldest to the youngest. Now, that ain't happenstance. The issue of grooming is real in the world. Ain't it? People get groomed and then they get shared. That ain't, I'm, listen, that ain't me. That's in the Bible. Don't, don't take my word for it. If you read about the story when Jesus gets his feet washed... And Simon says, if he knew what kind of woman this was, he wouldn't let her touch him. Ellen White says that Simon was the one that led her into sin. So we got people in the church that are, that are, that are part of the injury police that are doing injury. Wondering why ain't nothing changing. You let them into it and you bring them to the board. Jesus starts writing. He starts writing. And if I had, you know, I don't think it's too far of a stretch to consider what he may have written. Twenty twenty, May the sixth, seven PM. Twenty twenty one. April 4th, 3 in the morning. <laughs> 2022, December, the night before Christmas. <laughs> I'm not surprised because they are his accusers, they are her accusers, but when he finishes writing, the accusers are gone because they're guilty. He says, woman, where are your accusers? <clears throat> Has no one condemned you? No. He looks up at the people. He says, <clears throat> he says, whoever's without sin, and we'd love to make this thing so innocuous, whoever's without sin broadly, whoever has no sin in their life at all, cast the first stone. Well, no one can cast the first stone because no one is without sin. That's not the point. Whoever's not guilty of this sin, you're accusing someone, are you guilty of the same thing? Did you make them do it? Did you hurt them? Were you the one they trusted? Were you the one that handed it down to the family? Were you the one that they came for counseling and you abused that trust? If you ain't guilty of it, then you can say something. If not, shut your mouth. (laughs) 
in bringing them in bringing her to to Jesus remember that the father brought his son to Jesus and in so doing ended up getting his own forgiveness getting his own healing because he said can you help us when they brought her to Jesus they brought themselves as well which means condemnation and or forgiveness was available to the whole group so when Jesus let her go he had already let them go notice what he did not do he did not drag them did he he wrote it but nobody got to write what he wrote hmm he didn't address her. There's no specificity on how she was committing adultery. He doesn't list who she did it with, nothing. He just says, go and don't do it again. How does he expect that to happen? By faith. I am now the fact that you trust in. I am the one that has forgiven you and I am the one that will continue. We have to allow Jesus to consistently and continually people we consider unforgivable. I expect you to be who I've stood you up to be. Go and don't do it again. The walk of faith is based on taking actions built in trusting Jesus when my situation, my circumstance, and even my body does not agree. That is the walk of faith. I feel like smacking you, but God... I want to cuss you, but God. I'll burn this, but God. Right? I'm going to forgive you because of God. I'm going to love you because of God. I'll try again because of God. None of those things are anything that is natural to humanity, but faith. And so we love to, to throw up Faith's Hall of Fame. And Faith's Hall of Fame has, you know, these gentlemen. And let's just think about the names of people. It's faith. Right? Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. Looking unto Jesus. Running our race with patience. It says run the race with patience. Why? Because it's, it, it, it's either a long race or you're used to falling so much. You want to quit because you don't want to run anymore. The Bible gives you a list of people in Hebrews 11. We call it Faith's Hall of Fame. Let's think about who this is. Abraham, father of the faithful, pimped his wife out twice. It's in the Bible. I wish somebody would to save his own neck talked her into agreeing to being the wife of two other men hmm so let, I mean let's talk let, no, don't lionize them don't make them gods that's a horrible thing to do faithless man Isaac did the same thing Jacob, 
married two sisters. Before that, he manipulated his brother, he deceived his dad, and did voodoo with his uncle's sheep. <laughs> Say it ain't so. It is folk magic at best. What does stripping trees have to do with cow breeding? Nothing. But he's in Faith's Hall of Fame. Horrible guy. Who else? Samson. Who else? Who's who, Dave? Dave, Lord God, David. Seriously. You understand? Da David? Solomon? Let's do that. Who else? Who else? Jephthah conquered the people, killed his daughter. What are you going to do? Gideon freed the people, right? These people, watch this. These people were not great people of faith. They had great moments that they acted. No, no, don't say amen yet. Understand what that means. They got in the book and they got to be your faith ancestors and they were not perfect people. They were imperfect, flawed people. Flawed, deeply flawed. And they made it in the book because when God asked them to act, they did. In less than optimal circumstances. But they weren't great. And the text goes on, and, it, and, it, and here's the thing about it. It bothers to tell you, it bothers to give you a list of all the people God did great, great stuff for. It has another list that it doesn't even bother to enumerate. It says, and still others. That's what it says. And still others were tortured, not accepting deliverance. It doesn't bother, listen, the people of faith that it doesn't bother to mention greatly outnumber the people that it does. They were eaten by dogs, torn asunder, ripped by lions, sawed in half. They were not, they, they did not get what they asked for. But their faith had moved the mountain of doubt. And they acted even in the worst of circumstances. Why? Because they did not have faith in an outcome. They had faith in the person. So I'd like to change the list up a little bit. Talk about them for a minute. By faith, Hagar wanders in the wilderness, raising Ishmael into a man and teaching him of the God who sees. By faith, Ishmael, the rejected son, stayed true to the God of his mother and maintained respect for his father. By faith, Sarah and Rebecca were both pimped by their husbands and yet became the, the grandmothers of the Messiah. By faith, Leah produced multiple kids to a man who did not love her. By faith, Jephthah's daughter mourned the fact that she was about to die and then went and gave her neck to her daddy so he could slit it. By faith, the Levite's concubine laid hold of the door, refusing to give up after she had been tormented all night. By faith, Jonathan remained true to his daddy even after his daddy tried to kill him and his best friend and he died defending his daddy. By faith, countless Hebrew women endured poverty and suffering as their nation of their children as their nation turned against God. By faith, Isaiah was sawn in half by, uh, 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 by Manasseh. 
By faith, Stephen saw the Lord standing at the right hand when he should have been seated at the right hand, meaning Jesus was about to come get him, but Stephen stopped him asking for mercy instead. By faith, every apostle since, except John was, was brutally murdered. By faith, the ancestors endured the middle passage, some jumping ship, some staying on the boat, but they did it all by faith. By faith, abused women leaves their husband because they don't want to be abused anymore, even as the other abused woman stays in the marriage because she don't want to be abused by the church. By faith, the molested stay silent because they don't want to be shamed, and by faith, they report it because they don't want to get hurted. And the Bible opens up and says, these all died having not received the promise so that we without them might not be made perfect. And so Hebrews opens up and says, since we are surrounded by that great a cloud of witnesses, let us run your race, no, let us hold, let go of the weight and the sin that so easily besets you and run your race with patience. Looking unto Jesus, the offer and finisher of your faith. Faith is actionable. God is not impressed, depressed, suppressed, oppressed by the things that we struggle with. He asks us to take action. He asks us to trust him regardless of the outcome. He asks us to move the mountain of doubt and to commit to him. To commit to, to, to open-heartedness to transformation in the face of significant obstacles. He asks us to forgive when there should be justice. He asks us to try again when there should be separation. He asks us to be patient when I should get the scissors and cut you off. He asks us to, to act in faith when the circumstances are not optimal. Beloved, my, 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 my appeal to you is simple. Jesus assures us that we will have tribulation. He's, he's, he assures us of this. He asks us to trust him anyways. He asks us to trust him when it hurts, when you're alone, when you're crying, when you're in the hospital, when you're sick, when you're dying, he asks you to trust him when he doesn't cure you, when they don't come back, when your kids are wilding, when your car is broke, when the bills aren't paid, he asks you to trust him anyways. Trust me, not for the outcome, but because I'm ever present and I will always love you. Trust me, you don't know what I'm doing on the other side of this. Trust me. With as much patience as I've had with you, trust me with them. He asks us to trust him. My appeal to you is simple. Don't give up your trust because things get rough. Flex your faith and be a hero. This podcast was brought to you by Plantation Seven-day Adventist Church, a Christ-centered congregation dedicated to spreading the good news of God's love through sermons, deeper dive conversations, and much more. If you would like to listen to more life lessons and inspirational content, 
please visit us at plantationsda.tv.org.